Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, owner, operator and proud presenter of this podcast, str 8 Talk English on Twitter and straighttalkingenglish.com. As I promised you last night, we are tackling the minor characters. We are tackling Friar Lawrence, the nurse and the uh, medical aspects of of this play. Let's kick it off by looking at the good Friar. He's kind of an interesting fella, is our Friar Lawrence. When we first meet him, he is very much the voice of society. He is the normal Verona. The first point we meet him is, of course, his soliloquy out in his garden, where Romeo has decided that he wants to marry Julia, and he goes to see him to try and get his advice slash strong arm him into performance a wedding ceremony. The writer Ralph Berry, talking about the play in 1978, said the Veronese think in rhyme and communicate in rhyme, but rhyme is psychologically more interesting than it looks. I discern two main varieties of the mode. With the elders, the heavy jogging rhymes have the effect of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Night must follow light with the same inevitability that it does the day. The rhymes figure a closed system. The young people to confuse facility with penetration sees on the other aspect of rhyme that it can pick up the loose ends of a companion's speech. Rhyme, in sum, is inward turning, acquiescent, reflective of social forces. It tends to codify its own categories and insulate them against erosion. Thus, the audience first meet Friar Lawrence in soliloquy, speaking in heavy rhyming couplets, for example, tomb and womb. The entrance of Romeo and the switch to conversation does not prime him from this rigid verbal structure. So he is your conventional man of Verona. He also, I think anyway, gives the role, gives the appearance of being a Greek chorus. Now, Shakespeare's tragedies tend to, well, I would say, owe a little bit to the ancient Greek form of tragedy, in the sense that when you watch Paranormal Activity, it says, based on a true story at the start, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's set in a place called America, and America's real, but that's kind of it. So, in a Greek tragedy, there's this body of people, this role called the chorus, and the chorus represents society's view, and it's kind of weird to explain. If you read View from a Bridge, it's what Alfieri does. He's outside the action and he comments on the play. I went a few years ago to see a production of Medea at the National Theatre, and this character, Medea, is walking through the town, like, wondering what she should do about this problem her ex is getting remarried and she's angry about it so well she decides she's gonna kill their kids I mean this controversial suggestion but that's it's a tragedy that's what you do and all around her these like villagers are like oh what should Medea do now I think it's a terrible idea it's immoral and it's strange to look at but it kind of works and that's the Greek chorus we can see him we can see 
Fryer Lawrence as being the voice of society, the voice of convention, and Franklin M. Dickey writing all the way back in 1957 when my dad was only one year old, his moralising reading of the tragedy places a great deal of significance on Friar Lawrence who, unlike in the original versions, is a true chorus whose words give the necessary moral bait to judge the tragedy. And it might just be because he's a friar, he's a monk, he's a priest, he's involved in the church. Institutional religion is not just the mere backdrop for an action alternatively determined by pagan fate. This writer, Dickey, hears an instructive Christian voice in the play and regards it as central to the audience's response. It's telling that he should describe this moral base as necessary since not all theories of tragedy require moral judgement. In fact, ancient Greek tragedy is obviously pre-Christian, hence the word ancient. But, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it, when so many of the morals that we take for granted do come from this idea of Christendom and the influence of the church at this point is so huge. Another massive influence on Shakespeare is these medieval morality plays where a group of actors have come to your village and do a play that has a story and you'd be like oh this is the message. And we can argue that Friar Lawrence is a throwback from this medieval morality play tradition or at least Lawler writing in 1961 did because this medieval tragic vision thus has a Christian dimension that's inscrutable in its operations but point beyond earthly morality. So even though this is a Christian play, people are Christian, Shakespeare's a Christian, it goes beyond the laws of good and evil on the earth at this point. Lawler insists the important consideration is the morality on this earth, the morality universal, and one isn't an imperfect form of the other. The connection interested the ancient Greek, what absorbs the medieval mind is the absolute absence of a rationale in any terms less than an unsearchable divine vision. So for things we can't explain, we defer to the church at this point because they've got the answers. And for things like fate for the star-crossed lovers, it seems normal that they would defer to the church, you know? So of course they're like opening it up to Friar Lauren. He again, he's representing the conventional path. He's representing the audience's view. He has this sober knowledge, according to Mahmood, the friar's sober knowledge that the lovers have suffered and survived these calamities since the beginning of time. It's like when a student comes to me and they're like, my girlfriend's dumped me, and it's like, how long have you been together? Two weeks. And I'm like, yeah. And Mahmood argues that's what Friar Lawrence's role is, because the audience, as well as me, looks like, well, you've known each other for less, like, a day and you're insisting your soulmates I'm like yeah for the friar the world is very broad and wide but for Romeo there's no world outside of Verona while the friar tries to dispute him of his estate the generalized prayer bookish word yes and Romeo's distress is the common human lot and we believe as much even while we join with Romeo in his protest thou canst not speak of that thou dost not feel it's this paradox in the play everything's unique and everything's very similar and of course, as a priest, Friar Lawrence would not have been in love. He would be 
living the sober and celibate life. He would not be experiencing the problems that Romeo comes to him with. Friar Lauren is predominantly in the first half play, the rom-com half of the play. Friar Lawrence is one of a tribe of manipulators, according to Susan Schneider, whose job it is to transform or otherwise get round intractable reality. If his herbs and potions are less spectacular than other Shakespearean characters, he nevertheless belongs to their brotherhood. Such figures abound in romantic comedy as we've seen, but not in tragedy, but the future is not so manipulable. The Friar's aims are implicit in the play's comic movement, an inviolable union for Romeo and Juliet and an end to the family's feud. So he is a comic stereotype. He is. I mean, come on, how many rom-coms has there been a matchmaker who, like, puts the unlikely pairing together and then, you know, many thrills and spills abound and then they realise they're there together. But his plan is the final factor in the tragedy. If he didn't have this stupid plan of sorting it all out, then maybe they wouldn't have died. Neither again, the friar's failure to bring off that solution is the final definition of the tragic world of Romeo and Juliet. There is no villain, only chance and bad timing. In comedy, chance creates that elastic time that allows last minute rest, but here, events at Mantua and at the Capulet tomb simply happen by chance. In the wrong sequence, the friar does his best. He makes more than one plan to avert catastrophe. The first, predictably, is patience and a broader field of action. Romeo must go to Mantua and wait until we can find a time to blaze your marriage, reconcile your friends, beg pardon of the prince and call thee back. It's a good enough plan for life if not for drama, but it depends on finding a time. As it turns out, events move too quickly for the friar. The hasty preparations for Juliet's marriage to Paris leave no time for cooling tempers and reconciliation. His second attempt is his second plan is an attempt to gain time. He'll create the necessary freedom by faking Juliet's death. But time and chance, in which other plays cooperate benevolently with the forces of regeneration and renewal, work against Friar Lawrence. He arrives too late to prevent one half of the tragic conclusion, and his necessary estrangement from the play's world is only emphasised when he seeks to avert the other half by sending Juliet to a nunnery. The asked alternative means little to the audience or to Juliet, bears only a line to reject the possibility of adjustment and continuing life with go get thee hence, for I will not away. So is he part of this problem? I mean, all of his schemes are good. They are decent schemes, but with the laws of chance against them, it, like, is never gonna happen. So arguably, him, along with Tibble, are the drivers of this stupid, potentially inevitable conclusion. The other thing is that if it's supposed to be a comedy, it's the lovers getting it wrong. Like, it's supposed to be, like, you know, oh, the matchmaker says this crazy scheme and then you do it, ha ha ha, and then it works out well. The writer Rosette believes that in a comedy, the challenge posed by Juliet's dilemma of being commanded to wed Paris after her marriage to the banished Romeo would rouse the heroine to new heights of ingenuity. Instead, it reduces Juliet to suicidal desperation and she places herself in the hands of the friar. So, in fact, we could actually feel a bit of sympathy for him. Well, how about the nurse? <coughs> how about the nurse? I mean, the nurse is nice. She is good. She is very pleasant. Like, she is also, I can argue, a repurposed stocked character from medieval play. You know, like, oh, the funny old 
old lady. Think of all those um, really offensive Eddie Murphy movies where he dresses up as an old fat woman. It's that. And it comes from these really traditional forms. Rosette again. The dangerous adventure of famed death and promised resurrection was one of the oldest and most popular comic traditions on the English stage. The resurrection of a seemingly dead character was the central event in Mama's plays, for example, which celebrated the miracle of the seasonal renewal by dramatising the death of the old year and the birth of the new. Once drama ceased to be so closely linked to religious ritual, the resurrection motif continued to appear in comic plots. As an ironic reversal of expectations, it constituted a moment of festive triumph over the inevitable exigencies of time and death for characters and audience alike. So she should be part of a comedy. She should be part of, like, a funny thing where we all pretend to be deaf. Like, it's, it just doesn't work. Like, these two characters are sticking out as being, like, not what you expect at all. Focus a bit more on this, Snyder again. The nurse's goal is less lofty, but equally appropriate to comedy. She wants Juliet married to anyone. Her preoccupation with bedding and breeding reminds us of comedy's ancient roots and fertility rites, and is as indiscriminate as the life force itself. But she conveys no urgency in all of this. On the contrary, her garrulity, her like jolliness, assumes the limitless time of comedy. In this sense, her circumlocution, her like going around in circles, and digressions are really similar to Mercutio's witty games. And for that matter, Friar Lawrence's advice of patience, wisely and slow, the friar cautions Romeo, they stumble that run fast. Well, the nurse is not very wise, but she is slow. The leisurely time assumptions of both the friar and nurse contrast with the lover's impatience to create first the normal counterpoint of comedy and later a radical split that points us with the lovers directly towards tragedy. And like one of the things that doesn't translate really well is why Juliet would even have a nurse, let alone one that's representing all of this like hope and life force and this earthy wisdom. Well the answer is, remember Juliet is really young. Remember also, servants, especially old retainers like the nurse, could be considered part of the family. She was Juliet's wet nurse, so because it was unseemly for noble women to breastfeed, you'd find a woman who'd had a baby about the same time and you'd hire her to do the breastfeeding for you. So that was the nurse's official role and with a very distant tradition of noble relations to their families. So for example, Elizabeth and Mary growing up would have had their own separate households, their own separate courts. With this distance, we can see the nurse has this mother figure. And I mean, what would the nurse be doing day to day? Like, I mean, like wiping her nose or whatever. And the source to find this information, weirdly enough, is a language textbook. So there's this French language textbook from um, the period which is you know like you translate it into English and it teaches you the vocabulary but one of the text they have to translate is um, someone giving instructions for how to look after their baby and tell me if you don't think this is a good description of what the nurse would do unswaddle him under his swaddling bands give him his breakfast while I am here wash him before me have you clean water oh my little heart God bless thee rub the crown of his head wash his ears wash his face lift up a little his hairs is that not some dirt i see on his forehead his little cheeks are wet i believe you did leave him alone to cry and weep how many 
any teeth, Happy. Pull off his shirt. Thou art pretty and fat, my little darling. Wash his armpits. How he spreads his little fingers. His thumb and little finger are flea-bitten. Is there any fleas in your chamber? See how he beateth with his heels. Do you kick, Sarah? You have not washed the inside nor soles of his little feet. Forget not to make clean his toes, the great toe and all. Now swaddle him again, but first put on his cap, his little band with an edge. Where is his little petticoat? Give him his coat of changeable taffeta and his satin sleeves. Where is his bib? Let him have his gathered apron with rings hanging a bib to it. You need not give him his coral with the small chain for I believe it's better to let him sleep till the afternoon. Give him some food. I pray heed to wipe well your spoon before you put it in his mouth for fear there may be hair or other thing that may hurt him. You maid, go fetch the child's cradle. Make his bed. Put him in his cradle and rock him till he sleep but bring him to me first that I may kiss him. God send thee good rest my little boykin. And that's the window into like what the nurse is doing all day with Juliet. But that makes the bit where she lies to the nurse even sadder when she says I'm going to bed. She's symbolically rejecting her mother. She's denying her family and refusing thy name even in order to put her love first. The nurse is above all other things absolutely practical she just wants Juliet to be happy she doesn't want anything else it's like okay so Romeo's gone well get yourself a new husband oh well you know this has happened this has happened and it's really just really sad because both protagonists seek, seek escape from Verona's aggression through surrogate parents with Romeo turning to Friar Lawrence and Juliet to the nurse I'm quoting from Gillian Woods at this point I'm not actually this eloquent however these relationships again um, a dumb break different male and female experience Romeo finds a figure who's outside the system who'll plot to free the pair from their feuding family Juliet's surrogate mother is taken from within the Capulet household and will fail to help her in her married identity is their choice of surrogate parents kind of a problem does it further this conflict I don't know but what they do give up is a scent of the road left travelled they give us a sense of the alternative that are out there that they didn't actually have to go down this path there is a lot on this play here if I'm like if only if only you'd have just talked to someone it's ridiculous like presence of other paths make us more conscious of the road we are in fact travelling and so the nurse and the friar make us more profoundly sensible of the love of Romeo and Juliet and its tragic direction like because they're so sensible we realise how ridiculous everything else is speaking of things that are very sensible there's a lot of the medicine in the play is very sensible like okay checking to see whether Juliet's alive because this is one of the things that doesn't hold up well on the stage like how can you not tell if someone's sleeping well you could check her pulse but if your pulse is weak and I was trying to teach a 10 year old this week how to read her pulse and she could not feel one on herself for the life of her and she couldn't feel mine either and I'm like quite like tenderny and veiny especially on my wrist so the idea of just not being able to feel a pulse is entirely reasonable though for reference that was for her PE homework that she asked me to help her with the only other way to diagnose someone is by looking at their urine and I don't actually know if you can tell from urine whether it's from someone alive or they didn't died and these are the only real diagnostic tools that people have got available 
Now, a lot of the play, especially when explaining why Tibble is such an awkward item, shall we say, is due to this medical thought of the time. Everything is made up of the human. I'm quoting Liz Picard. But very briefly, this theory ran thus. Human life depended on the proper balance of the four elements. Fire, air, water and earth. Represented in human terms by four humans. Blood, phlegm, collar and black bile. So we've got these four substances in our body and they represent the four elements. You can tell if someone's elements are out of whack or like what element is strongest in them from their personality so if you've got too much collar in you you are envious covetous cruel a watcher lean and of yellow color so it comes back to this idea that it's destiny and fate that gives you your personality if we're still debating this idea that they're starcraft maybe it's destiny influenced the humans in their body to make them this way in 1568 a called William Tanner, sorry Turner, in his book called The Herbal said that whatever disease there was, God had made a plant to cure it and we could tell what part of the body it helped by looking at the shape of the plant. The only one cited, which I can remember, which is really really bad and I'm, I apologise for my rudeness, is that all kids look like testicles. So if you are checking for testicular cancer you should look at orchids because apparently orchids will solve many genital problems also if you have testicles check for testicular cancer it is a big deal and Brian Lawrence 100% subscribed to this idea he says oh mickle with the powerful grace that lies implants her bones and their true qualities for naught so vile that on the earth doth live but to the earth some special good doth give see what I said about the rhyming really heavy it's really intense though but if he's following this tradition then everything he uses must be divinely ordained therefore the potion is something that's come god therefore it's destiny therefore it's starcrust therefore it's unavoidable Whew. Whew, that is a long old sentence i must say before I let you go back to your days and I'm sure, sure you are as excited as I am about the possibility of Elizabethan medical history. I, I'm sure, I'm sure you are. Think about the weird scene where Romeo goes to the apothecary's shop in Mantua and I just think that scene is so fabulous in terms of the description. And what's interesting is that a shop like that would not have been very far at all from the globe. Now I don't know if you know the geography of central London but according to Picard there's a hundred of them in London many of them clustering in one street just off Cheapside. Now imagine walking from the globe on the south bank and you walk forward up to St Paul's other side of St Paul. It's like I don't know a 20 minute walk if you walk quite fast and this is literally what you can find is these apothecary's shops for real okay Shakespeare says you can find a tortoise hung an 
alligator stuffed and the skins of ill-shaped fishes. Well, I personally don't want to body shame any fishes. I think they're all beautiful. They are wonderful in their own way. But these are totally real. Apothecaries are real. And people are looking at this scene that we think is kind of macabre and kind of fab in Romeo and Juliet. And they are so familiar with it. I love that. Just reread the apothecary scene. It's so good. Right, noises aside. Business time now. We've got one more episode left of this season. We are finishing up with some reactions to Romeo and Juliet. Very excited. Next episode, I'm going to announce the next season topic of season three. Drum roll excitement. Have a lovely week. Have a lovely time out in the sunshine and I shall return to you shortly to drop some reactions. Thank you very much.